You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This is the final podcast I'm doing here. I, I may have one short one after this, but this is the, the final scheduled one from Savannah CNU 26. The topic of this one is suburban poverty meets sprawl retrofit. I think two of these kind of hot topics. And we brought together some experts on this. To my left here, June Williamson, Associate Professor of Architecture at City College of New York. And all of her good notes. She's very well organized. Can't help it. Very well put together. It's okay. We, uh, I know. Next to June is Dan Reed, writer, urban planner. I know you've written some stuff with us at times. You write for Greater Greater Washington. That's right. Uh, Fantastic. (laughs) It's so nice to meet you and to have you here. I'm happy to be here. The woman that I have uh, intellectual crush on, Galina Takieva, managing partner at DPZ. I love her work. I love everything she does. I just love saying your name over and over. Galina Takieva, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. It is Galina Takieva. Takieva. Yes. It is difficult even in Bulgarian, so don't worry. (laughs) Yes. Well, Andres always makes a mistake to call me Takieva, so maybe you have got it from him. I think I've him. got it from Andres. <laughs> yes. Tachieva? Tachieva. <laughs> okay. I will do my best. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Glad to be here. I want to start this conversation about suburban poverty and, and sprawl retrofit, maybe with the, the second part of that, the sprawl retrofit part, because I, I think that's the part that maybe as new urbanists is easier for us to get our mind around. You have done some beautiful imagery, some beautiful designs. I've seen some great stuff on the ground. Can we just talk about where we're at right now with the concept of sprawl retrofit? This isn't something new. This is something we've been working on here for a while. Do you want to start us off with that? Is, is that anywhere in your notes? Sure. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe not. Since Ellen Dunham Jones and I started tracking this stuff a, a decade ago, we started out with a you know sort of a one page database, and now we have. Uh, thousands, literally thousands of examples that fall into the different categories of the dead and dying shopping malls that have been either redeveloped, re-inhabited in some way, partially re-greened. And those are the sort of three main strategies that we've sort of identified with these projects. So it's the, the malls, the strip centers. In the New York area where I live, Metro New York, the, the office parks are starting to experience kind of critical uh, vacancy, and so those are becoming very, very ripe for rethinking. From the level of looking at these opportunity sites, the failed post-war developed properties, often very large footprints, there's a lot of activity there, but it's on a project-by-project basis. So so the question of how that starts to scale up, um, the geography of where these things are happening, where they aren't, the kinds of things that are that are happening in certain communities and not in others. I think we need to kind of open up the discussion of what kind of wet retrofit where, and and I think that fits in perhaps to to this discussion because sometimes I think the set of tools gets flattened and sort of reduced to the mall is going to turn into this walkable mixed right. use higher density downtown, right. and that's just not 
going to happen everywhere. Right. right. Nor, nor should it. Are you from the D.C. area? Is that where you're? Uh, born and raised, yes. Oh, okay. And that's where you're living now? That's right. Okay. I feel like the D.C. market is one of these, maybe the poster child for successful suburban retrofit. There's a lot of money there. There's a lot of energy there. There's a lot of, you have the means and the will, the desire kind of combining together. What are some of the things that you've experienced in the, in the D.C. market in terms of taking some of these places that, that ended their useful life and, and repurposing them for today? Um, I think it is really remarkable that there does seem to be a consensus both at the local level and regionally that this is the way that we have to do things. I don't spend a lot of time convincing elected officials that we need to turn the old strip mall into a, a town center. I think the real challenge is sort of we've become a victim of our own success. There is a tremendous amount of pressure to live in this region. We've done a really good job of making it a nice place to live, and these suburban retrofits make it an even nicer place to live. And we're dealing with some real issues of, I think, housing access and housing affordability. That's not just at the very low income level, but like middle class people too, you know, are struggling to make ends meet here. And it's funny, for all the good work that we've done to provide more housing in this region, there's still a lot more that we need to do. And I think that the way I see it is it's sort of that next string around the suburban retrofits, those those neighborhoods that were have been promised where you're just going to stay single family homes forever. I think we're going to start questioning how sustainable that is in the long term. Right. Galena, you've done some of the most beautiful work on this. Your book, I just like literally fell in love with the work you guys have done at DPZ in going in. Where do you think we are in this cycle? Because it seems like there's a mounting number of places that need this work, yet a limited set of places where maybe it actually works. What are you seeing as like the prime kind of places where you can walk in and have this conversation? Well, I will start probably from another point of view. Sprawl, actually, the the only good thing about it, kind of the good news about Sprawl, that yeah. it's very repetitive and it's very normative. And yes, we're talking about very different strategies and very different uh, approaches. However, there are many principles and a kind of larger thinking which can be very much the same in many places. And if we are capable of creating a set of principles and steps how to do these things and actually enable municipalities, educate uh, leaders uh, in the neighborhoods, educate residents, uh, public officials, the doers, the developers and the investors about these tools, then I think that we we may have uh, a much better chance uh, for a success. I mean, Sprawl was actually duplicated itself and actually became like this virus in our uh, built environment because it was normative. So a kind of toolkits of repetitive types will be, or prototypes, let's say, will be a great thing to start with. And we see a kind of certain things which have started a kind of uh, emerging as good strategies. And the list is very, actually, very long. The strategies for a mall can be various, but uh, if you think about it uh, from different scales or uh, in terms of size, but also in time, then you see that then you have, you know, you have a kind of a limited list. If we talk about successional development or incremental development, then you can start uh, coming up with ideas about uh, easier, faster, cheaper ways how to do things. We know, yes, some of the suburban types, all of them, you know, have uh, something in common, the large parking lots. And that's a very good starting point. You know, this is basically underutilized real estate waiting to be 
to be developed, to be worked with. And uh, these parking lots actually can be activated on a temporary basis in the beginning, uh, whether they are activation, a kind of incubation spaces, delineating or making the hint of a sociable public hub where things can happen, create some foot traffic for the retail, which is suffering in the background. You know, we know it's not that great, but it's there and it needs some kind of, you know, revitalization. And then when things begin to make sense economically, then the next step of uh, more permanent uh, development can happen. So this is just one example about successional incremental growth, which is a strategy which should be used everywhere or in the places, in many places, actually. Not ready for the big projects. Sure. You said that the sprawl development, the post-war development is very normative. We could do this at scale, basically. Like we could set up a standard checklist bring it down to the local level and people could, and I'm going to use my word, kind of mindlessly repeat it over and over and over. It seems like a lot of the retrofit stuff, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit, June, it is more nuanced or more detailed. And it actually involves some with building type, but also some with like the human equation. How do we get people out here and how do, what's the transition? Do we need to trust people at the local level more? Do we need to give them more tools, more knowledge? Do we need to give them more training? Do we need to give them bigger budgets? Like what's the, what's the thing that's going to take what we've set up to be like, let's manufacture America to let's artistically create these communities again. How does that knowledge get translated? You want to start with that, Dave? I I would say we do need to have a more inclusive local process. I want to see people who aren't the quote-unquote usual suspects at public hearings being listened to and being engaged because, you know, we're the ones who are going to be here for a long time and we should have more of a say in how our communities are shaped. At the same time, I think whether it's at a regional or state or maybe national level, like there should be, I think, uh, more to encourage more flexible kinds of zoning. You know, we shouldn't allow neighbors to basically preempt the opportunity to invest in the community around them because they don't want it. Uh, there should be some something from a higher level saying, hey, you know, you're responsible for bringing in your share of people and your share of tax base too. Right. Right. June, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to elaborate that, I guess, maybe to segue into the question of, of poverty, too. One lens through which we can read poverty is that there are some municipalities that are resource rich through taxation or other kinds of, of public funding, and then they have the resources to do more robust planning, uh, to provide incentives, that kind of thing. And so that's one level in which we can think of some communities that are more impoverished than others, and they've got to then put on their bootstraps, look to their own residents, maybe think of ways to reduce barriers to people investing in their own way in re-inhabiting and reusing that cheap space that that otherwise is is languishing. And it may not look beautiful, but it starts to build up social capital that then can kind of keep investment in the the community. Um, And then there's the the poverty at the level of the residents themselves and people have living very precariously and it's increasing the number of folks who are not making it in the suburbs. They may own their own homes, but, but just barely. Sometimes there's a sense that a retrofit could begin a kind of process that could end up displacing folks who live there. Or, And I've talked about this before when we talk about a mixed-use project, and it includes work. What kind of work? Are we just automatically thinking about like office jobs and, and retail, and retail for those office workers 
that's part of their play, but in fact, retail is work too. And what kind of jobs are they? And, and what kind of living do they provide? And where do the folks who are doing those jobs live? And so can we open up what, what's work in a, in a retrofit? And I think formally, it's going to be the same built space, but perhaps it's different kinds of incubator businesses and ways in which people can make a better living. Because I think that, that the research shows that it's the preponderance of low-paying jobs in suburbs that are contributing to people being unable to move up the, sure. the ladder. Sure. Go ahead, Kalina. Just from the perspective of somebody who has been in the trenches, you know, doing some of these projects for more than 20 years. Now it will be 25 soon, so I'm embarrassed. <laughs> for the lengthy time. But from this perspective, I have found out that in public processes, you know, to be able to uh, make people believe in some of these efforts and all of the names which we have been, uh, you know, coming up with, whether it's retrofitting sprawl or repairing sprawl or even build a better burp, it's, it's a kind of, uh, these are proactive uh, uh, terms and people are sometimes afraid. Oh, you're coming to my community to do something to it and I'm afraid of change and all of that. So I think that if we frame the discussion within a kind of three big goals and a kind of calibrate them to the local conditions usually has been a very successful strategy. And a kind of the first goal in most cases is to talk about the quality of life of people. And you say, look, we are coming here to actually improve your quality of life. You know, we are not going to uh, try to change things for the better or for worse. We are just, we are trying to help you to a kind of better the situation. And for different communities, these are different things. I yeah. just came back from a charrette in Bonita Springs. We're the Springs. government, we're here to help. Yeah, right. exactly, to help. And they're yeah. very, uh, they're, everybody's very, right. very, exactly, right. very, that very... That wouldn't go over well where I'm yeah. from. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, what happens is that uh, you have to actually persuade them that, you know, you'll be helping or improving their quality of life. Just came back from Bonita Springs, whether it's a kind of an aging community, the older folks didn't want to hear about walkability. They're like, I'm too old. I cannot walk. I can drive my car. It didn't matter that an old uh, lady, her probably 90s, almost mowed us down, you know, the whole group of designers (laughs) on a a (laughs) pedestrian crosswalk with her big Cadillac. It was really, you know, very kind of telling, but they just didn't want to give up their their cars. But that's a kind of, so we had to basically find the things which will be improving quality of life for these people, you know, for this particular community. Also, another thing is, again, to uh, kind of focus on their values. You know, maybe the place where you're from, the values are different than, you know, in South Beach or in, you know, here in Savannah. Or, so we have to find a kind of the local code or the local conversation or the local terminology. You know, today we were talking about the jargon, you know, the planning jargon and all of that. We have to basically walk in the shoes of the people on the ground. Sure. My third point is that we have to also look at the market and look at who is coming, you know, and look, look at, you know, who will be doing all these things in the future? And he's right in be- between us, right here, a millennial. You know, these are, this is the next generation. We have to basically engage and inspire them and fold them into this group of uh, uh, doers. Yesterday we had a very good uh, session. That The name of it was basically who is reinventing the suburbs and if the retrofitting suburbia is like the biggest, the biggest project of the 21st century, how can we catalyze the millennial generation to be not only on the receiving end 
as users in our target market. You know, they're like some species which everybody's, oh, the millennials, the millennials, they're, you know, the receivers, but also the doers and the creators and the, you know, participating in the economic process. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want wanted to ask you a, a question about that, that, Galina. I'm wondering, with this question of work and the future of work, what are you, kinds of things are you, you seeing? I remember we, we had a sort of meeting of the minds a few years ago about food production and how maybe culinary training and preparing food could be the kind of thing that we might see more of in suburbs. It's the kind of, you know, what kinds of jobs can't be outsourced, can't be automated in the same way? And, and perhaps this is a question for you, Dan, Dan, as well, as we design and make these retrofits, what are people going to be doing for, for work? And not just the millennials, but the generation that's going to, to follow you. So I, I guess it's a question for, for, for both of you. Well, I, I guess I'm less concerned about what, what we think those things are going to be and more about just making room for those opportunities to occur. And, and for me, it comes time and time again to the cost of doing business, right? You know, the, the city at its best is an engine for social and economic opportunity, and suburban retrofits are an chance to create that for more and more people. But the way that a lot of these retrofits have been sort of built out is, is similar to the suburban development that they are a, a finished product. Like here it is, we just put some nice walkable streets in and the Whole Foods and, and an apartment building and it's done and it's just going to be like this for another 50 years. And maybe there are ways to make that form more flexible to create more opportunities for people to plug into it for whatever the market says that it wants in five years and 10 years and 20 years, you know? Well, one idea about work is, and it's a very kind of, to me, it's very logical, is that the younger generation will be caring for the older generation. You know, there will be a lot of baby boomers who will be stuck in the suburbs no matter what, whether they will not be able to uh, sell their houses, which is a kind of the most elemental reason. But there are many other reasons people don't want to leave their communities. And they will be in their cul-de-sacs and in the countless subdivisions, which, you know, some of them may be luxury ones, some of them will be falling down, some of them will be foreclosed whatever there will be you know residential subdivisions where people will be still living so there is an opportunity of creating locally a local businesses being run and also operated and and you know with participation of the younger generation which will be providers of healthcare providers of services all of these things you know uh, one strategy which I have been thinking about for a long time about the subdivision specifically the res residential developments are they going to be like static forever? Are they going to be this static tissue which we are always referring as um, the untouchable, <laughs> really the untouchable, hard. yes, the untouchable land? Right. Uh, so that's a kind of a, an interesting question. Maybe with uh, some kind of again, let's not say mindless repetition, but we can create a module or a kind of a way of thinking how we can supplement or rebalance the purely residential areas with useful things. Just think about it, what is useful for a neighborhood or like several neighborhoods which they can share something like that. It may be a recycling center, a garden, it can be a, uh, it can be a senior living, a little component, but small component where some young people can participate, you know, hairdresser, daycare, whatever, whatever the community needs. I mean, these are already things you can start to see now. I mean, people have been starting home-based businesses for decades, and increasingly you see people starting things that are public-facing businesses, you know, 
food production. Daycare centers are one that you mentioned. Uh, and I think over time, we might even see the house form itself start to change. I mean, in the county where I live, Montgomery County, Maryland, you go on any major uh, state highway or, or boulevard, and you'll see where the little suburban houses have been over time turned into shops and offices and stuff. And, you know, the county kind of clamped down the zone and let you not do that anymore. But there is uh, maybe two miles from my house something called the Long Branch Mini Mall, which is literally a split-level house that has been chopped up into little hairdressers and nail places and tax accountants. And like, it's the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. Um, I wonder how this was done uh, zoning wise and how the homeowners association uh, uh, allowed it. It probably is through the homeowners association. It uh, predates an HOA. It's probably, the house is probably from the 50s. Sure. I'd like to start putting a poverty piece into this. I was invited to moderate a panel at New York University last fall, a conference with real estate professionals. And so I, I was there, a very like high testosterone kind of event, a uh, lot of people talking large dollar amounts. I had just returned from Akron, Ohio, where I'd seen the Rolling Acres Mall imploded, trees growing through the roof, walls collapsed. I mean, it's, it's everything you see in the... Deadmalls.com. Uh, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I, I brought up to these people because they were talking repetitively about the big 50 markets. And we're active in the big 50 markets. And we're going to put our money in the big 50 markets because the 50 markets is where we can make this Wall Street capital work. And I asked about the Rolling Acres Mall. I, because these were all, I'm sorry, I didn't say this. These were all mall developers. So they were all people who were interested in mall properties. And one of them was like the slumlord of mall developers. Like he would buy the really failing ones and then bring in the pawn shop and all that. But the rest of them were... Top 50 markets. How do we get in the top 50 markets? That's, that's where our money is. We're going for experience. We're going for bling. We're going for massages and, and laser tag and all this. Yeah, King of Prussia Mall. Exactly, exactly. That's what we want. And I asked him about Akron and the Rolling Acres Mall. And the one guy, and I, I can't say it because we're a family-friendly podcast, but he said in his New York accent, he goes, nobody here gives up about Akron. And that was the response. I think of a place like Ohio and a lot of these towns, Akron-like, that are struggling. Where is the capital going to come from to make some of these changes? Where are we going to get the resources? Is it the fact that we do it incrementally? Where does the capital come from if we're not going to get it through these kind of traditional methods? And you can reject that premise if you want, but I'd, I'd like to explore that a little bit. I think part of this is that even within the so-called top 50 markets, there are little Akrons sure, spread sure. out, yep. like Patterson, New Jersey, that it's not just New York City and an undifferentiated swath of suburbia around it, that there are some of those older, smaller cities and towns embedded in the sprawl, and they're hurting just as badly. This is where some of the strategies of re-inhabitation come into play and just some small cosmetic seed money can help turn a place around in a sense and open it up to, to folks to, to be able to creatively use it as long as it's kind of stabilized so it's sufficiently safe. Um, also, I think the regreening idea that sometimes in a place where there isn't um, gr a growing population, it's about restructuring the resources that already exist there and funds are needed to deconstruct some of these places return them back to a greener condition. And I think that can help stabilize 
the the places around it. And, and I think there's some labor in that, in that kind of depaving, but it's something that could be done without without Wall Street capital, sure, I guess. Sure, sure. Dan, go ahead. Yeah, I want to second what June said. I mean, even in the top markets, there are areas that are really not attracting any capital. There's a shopping center uh, I grew up going to hang out in high school in Burtonsville, Maryland, and right now it is pretty much abandoned. And the developer is a big-name national developer. They've done some fantastic you know, high-end mixed-juice suburban retrofit stuff, and they don't want to do anything with that property. They'd rather just let it sit. And the county is really frustrated with them because there's no demand for retail in that spot. And there's no interest in doing anything else with it. And so there's all these conversations you could have about what you could do with that space, but the, the will isn't there. I agree with, with June that there, there might be times you just have to kind of scrape it and return it to the land. I think that's okay in some cases, you know, especially as long as you're already within that sort of uh, footprint of the built uh, city, right? There's an opportunity to create more open space there or to find some other use. One of the county's proposals for that shopping center is, a, is recreation fields, right? right? Which is something that area actually needs. Sure, sure. I think that there will be, that the big capital is uh, going to still be investing in uh, types of projects which are large scale. There is no way around it and they will be doing it. The thing is that actually the pattern is shifting. It's a kind of a different animal. Uh, we have been working with Simon Property Group, and of course, their uh, kind of class A malls are doing very well, and they, they, they believe and they trust that, yes, the luxury uh, market will be still thriving, and maybe they're right for the next decade or so. However, they have been very careful to look at some of their other properties which are probably not in the best condition. You know, in many, in many places, anchors are disappearing, department stores are closing. So they are seeing the trends in the suburbs. And they have started actually retrofitting their own projects. You know, we have a project on Long Island, one of these uh, case studies which, uh, you know, we are talking about Long Island this morning where actually they got rid of the idea of the mall altogether. You know, it was from uh, Taubman property, which uh, was supposed to be developed with a multi-million square footage of, uh, of a mall, actually turned into a mixed-use uh, village, which will be developed by Simon Property Group. So the big, the big uh, capital is looking at these new trends and whether they will be in more luxury uh, markets or more poorer markets, that's to be seen. However, there are other smaller players uh, who are actually very interested in, in, different, in different approaches, more incremental or smaller uh, infusion of capital, like we are doing, uh, redoing a shopping center in the southern part of Atlanta, which is not in the best uh, kind of growth pattern. You know, right now everything is uh, hopping in, around Atlanta, but the south side is the one which was uh, kind of the slowest. But even there, uh, suburban retrofit is becoming a kind of the tool of creating, creating value out of undervalued land, which hopefully will spread around the neighborhoods as a kind of a model or a, a catalyst for better development uh, in, in poorer communities. So... I want to ask a functional question about balancing the kind of the where question. Where do we invest the time and energy and capital and retrofit? Where do we regreen, I think is the term you used, or basically return things back more to a state of nature? That seems like a complex problem, but it seems like a problem that technical people can deal with. But underneath that problem is this layer of 
this is your neighborhood, this is your neighborhood, this is your neighborhood. There's a human problem. And then underneath that, there's this even deeper social problem of this is a neighborhood of people who have been privileged in the past, have been disadvantaged in the past. How do we start to layer these things together into a coherent conversation about where we put our efforts for retrofit to work? So with that, you each have 30 (laughs) seconds. Do you see what I'm getting at, though? Because there's a, there's, a, there's a complexity here, and I, I think it looks very good in a diagram. I am an engineer. I'm a planner. Like, I'm not a, I'm not a designer the way that you all have worked. And to me, to see the work, it is beyond, like, I am impressed the same way. I'm impressed with, like, a Picasso. Like, I could not do that. That's sheer genius. But there's another, like, couple layers to this. And I wonder if our conversation is either not advanced enough there or if we are there and I'm not grasping it. So I guess there's there's two things that I want to want to share. I think we still have work to do just in general conversation to break down this notion that the city and the suburbs are opposites somehow or that there's a zero sum game one is doing well then the other will of necessity do do poorly. I think we have to continue to evolve our ways of understanding the much more complex geography of metropolitan areas and that you can have very, very different conditions all um, existing side by side and that those histories are deep and complex. This isn't also a a new phenomenon. And so that's something that I continue to want to learn more about, traveling, talking to people, seeing places. And I'm sure, Galena, I know you travel all over the place. And and I think this is has to be part of, of any of this this conversation about the, the future of, of suburbs. So I just want to say that. And the other thing I want to say is that I think a beautiful project can be realized in any context, I think, with the right kind of sensitive design, with different budgets, a range of ambitions and, and timescales. So I think the potential for good design to influence and kind of engage with the detritus of, of these sort of growth machines that were so robust in in suburban areas, in peripheral areas, in cities over the past many, many decades. You know, I don't think it's an either or or a you get this and you don't. With talented, informed, committed designers, some really lovely projects can and are resulting um, with different budgets at different scales and in different places for, for different communities. Where should we put our efforts first and foremost? I mean, that's a difficult question, but I will start with our regulatory framework, with our, the mechanisms which actually create the, uh, the, the development patterns. Right now, most of the country is still ruled by the, the, the codes which produce sprawl to begin with. And this is actually relevant for rich communities, luxurious communities, and for poor people and for everybody. Actually, we are, kind of in a poverty situation everybody's in the same in the same thing because we have been suffering from these growth patterns for so many years so i think that if we start trying to change the regulatory framework to give uh, more opportunities for this type of development for the development of mixed use compact walkable communities we will be we will be in good shape however because it is a very lengthy and expensive process you know we have been doing you know these form-based codes around the country to be just to to be able to do mixed-use development you know for suburban retrofits is as difficult as it is you know the commercial properties probably are uh, much easier 
tourism because it's basically the residential is a kind of in the background or uh, adjacent. Uh, there is not to, so much, you know, naysayers. But of course, if you do a larger town center, people come out, oh, we'll be, have traffic and all of that. In areas which are undeveloped and which have been lacking investment in the communities for many years, let's say the poor neighborhoods, actually we have the know-how and we have the technology to to help these communities with lighter code hacking, pink zones, you name it, you know, things which actually can be implemented in a fast and cheaper way so that the neighborhood has the choice. If the neighborhood says, do you know what, we prefer to stay in the sprawl condition with the big setbacks and we can never do a little outbuilding which I can rent and I can never do anything like uh, something in my, uh, a little business in my garage and stuff like that. If they say we don't want that, that's fine. But if they say yes, we want it, they will have the choice to do that without going through hefty, lengthy uh, regulatory processes where you need expensive lawyers. And these poor neighborhoods, you know, the, the things which happen in these neighborhoods is that, you know, developers come in because they have the, the means to have lawyers and to read the regulatory system and all of that. They go and gentrify by force. But if you want to enable the neighborhoods themselves, then you have to give them kind of the easier and uh, faster and cheaper path. You, you said, you know, if you, if you want to keep your suburban neighborhood, keep it. If you want to, you know, retrofit, retrofit. It felt like you were kind of describing a static situation. And the situation that, that I see is one where the suburbs are becoming under increasing pressure to maintain this real high financial burn lifestyle with inhabitants that are increasingly at the economic margins. So you kind of combine the worst of the expensive development pattern with people who are the, the least suited to essentially carry that financial burn rate. Is this going to push us into making harder choices that we're just really not prepared to make? Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I think we would have a lot more financial will and a lot more political will to do investment in any kind of communities that already exist if we weren't still expanding at the fringes. You know, five or six years ago in D.C., we had pretty much declared sprawl over because of the Great Recession, but it's, it's back, right? You can go 50, 60, back, baby. 50, yeah. 60 70 <laughs> miles south and west from the city and it's starting again the very you know affordable neighborhoods where they can go and move and then spend six hours a day in the car on the eastern side of the region which has traditionally been less affluent and uh, more uh, black population uh, it's not happening right people will often say well I'm going to go commute from West Virginia rather than live in Prince George's County they may not be saying that directly but that is effectively the choice that they're making uh, if we take that option away to keep going further and further out we suddenly have a lot more will to start reinvesting in these closer in communities and the ability to do so in a way that actually acknowledges the existing context, right? The two choices if you want to uh, invest right now are here's a selection of uh, highly desirable, increasingly gentrifying, high-pressure, in, close-in neighborhoods and wealthier neighborhoods, or the fringe. If you take the fringe out of the equation, we can suddenly do a lot more with the communities that we have and, and hopefully get them on a track that is more, both more financially solvent, gives the residents more access to social economic opportunities, and most significantly of all, allows people to stay and be a part of the communities that they've been a part of and, and live in and contribute to this region's culture and identity and either are forced to you know, make really difficult choices about do I stay and struggle or do I move further out or do I just leave entirely, which more and more people are doing. 
I'm going to gently push back on that. I hear the narrative and I, I don't have any disagreement with it. I'm going to try to bring it back beyond the top 50 markets again. Because th there are places, and we can talk about Akron as, as one, where there is no horizontal expansion because there's no expansion at all. You're really in a situation almost mirroring what we maybe saw two decades ago in Detroit, where the disinvestment and the lack of inertia is really causing these neighborhoods to fall apart systematically. Is there a strategy in a suburban retrofit? I mean, because these places are dominated geographically by post-war development. I mean, they are a small, a small donut hole of, of pre-war stuff with wide swaths of post-war. Is there a strategy for these places in the suburban retrofit playbook? I, I can just give an example from our session uh, yesterday. That yes, there are examples of you know exactly similar type of communities. It wasn't in Ohio, the one which uh, we know about, Duluth, Georgia, but it is you know in the context of uh, Georgia, Absolutely, and it is yeah. and it is an incredible success because there was leadership. There was a community leadership within the community. It was not regional planning from the top. It wasn't state planning. It wasn't federal money. It was the community. Basically, the leadership from the community, you know, they had uh, really uh, uh, forward-thinking people. They just thought that they cannot put up with the situation as it has been so far, that they are going to make everything possible politically to educate the residents and everything. But the thing is that it comes within the community. It's not, we can, as designers, as uh, academics, as planners and uh, media gurus, etc., etc., we can educate, inspire, give tools and all of that, but we cannot make it happen, you know. So I believe that the community itself has to, to stand up for itself and do, do things. Over there, it's like what they have been doing it has been totally amazing. You know, density and uh, walkability and uh, fantastic uh, restaurant uh, uh, areas and things which are basically appropriate as, uh, economic, as an economic catalyst for their particular place. While we can energize local community as much as possible, I also think that we need to be thinking about this at the national scale because I think narratives about poverty are outdated, severely outdated, and the kinds of language that gets used, again, back to, to language, inner city poverty are these sort of joined together phrases. And as much as we hear about Detroit and the loss of population there, which has been profound in the poverty associated with it, there are now more people living in poverty outside Detroit than in Detroit. So you have more people in need in the suburbs around Detroit that don't have the focus or even a, a, a general understanding of the scope of, of the problem. And, and I was interested in your phrase earlier about this high burn rate kind of ideal of what it would mean to make it. And I think we need to, to reset those narratives also about what constitutes success. There's a pervasive class anxiety that's associated both with poverty or near poverty or the, the fear of not continuing to be able to maintain this assumed desired lifestyle. And I want to throw this idea out. I did an interview a while back with uh, Pete Saunders, who does the, the Corner Side Yard blog, excellent blog. He grew up in Detroit, is now lives in Chicago, but he said his wife wanted to move to the suburbs. And it was one of those things where, for her, the suburbs represented a plateau of success 
that she felt like now that they were, they, they'd grown up in poor neighborhoods, now they had a certain level of affluence, and now we can have that too. How do we reconcile that? And I asked him, and he didn't have a good answer. How do we reconcile the idea that you aspire to this, but now I know what's better for you, and you should not want this? How do we start to reconcile that conversation? I, I think they're not mutually exclusive. We tend to forget in conversations about urbanism that for a lot of people, particularly brown people, black people, minorities, immigrants who grew up in less than great urban environments, both in the U.S. and abroad, that moving to the suburbs is still aspirational and people are still doing it every day. That choice should be accepted and celebrated when it can be. Like it is good if you're, I think it is good if you're going to have the life that you want to leave. It's what you came to this country for. That said, uh, there is still, I think, a yearning in a lot of these communities to have something different, right? I'll, I'll talk about Prince George's County again, next to DC, majority minority county, the wealthiest majority black county in the nation, but also one with significantly more poverty and disadvantage than the rest of the DC area. And one of the complaints you'll hear from people who move to that place, you know, for suburban lifestyle is, where is the shopping? Where are the amenities? We always get last year's model, right? We get the stuff that, you know, the other wealthier suburbs were getting 10 and 15 years ago. Now the other wealthier suburbs are getting retrofits. They want some of that too. With that community, with last last year's model. I like the way it is. That makes, that's a, that resonates. Yeah. That makes sense. You can have both, especially, you know, for people who come from cultures where, you know, there was some positives to urbanism. There was a sense of community, a sense of belonging. Like I want to harness that and use that in all of these communities where people are saying, even though I want a house with a yard and a garage, I still want to feel like I'm a part of something. And that's what retrofits can do. Yes, and this has been the American dream, and it has been for, uh, you know, for centuries almost to have the single-family lot with a house, and actually this is the element of the great American house. It could be a dwelling house that has two families in it. Yes, absolutely, but it has been also the element of the great American neighborhoods. We should not forget that actually suburbs are not equal. We have sprawl, but we have also suburbs, which are wonderful neighborhoods of single-family housing. Right now, yes, we are. We hear from uh, the market specialists that we have enough single-family housing stock, and we will need other types. And here we come as, as, as designers, we come as designers to say, okay, well, we have all these single-family houses, maybe there are other ways of dealing with them. But historically, the single-family was a much larger unit, right? Yeah, you had exactly. more children, you had exactly. extended mm-hmm. families, um, you might have had live-in domestic, you know, the wealthier families had had servants living in. So so it actually, over time, what was the dwelling that had lots of different folks living in it through the 19th century got reduced to a much smaller nuclear family group, and perhaps that needs to expand out again. So what constitutes a dwelling and take the single family, lop that part off, and then we can have a much more robust and open and perhaps historically accurate uh, sense of what, what a dwelling. Yeah, Laurie Volk yesterday uh, mentioned that 59% of all the all households in America are one or two people uh, households. So it's that's absolutely right. Hey, I'm Bo Wright. Uh, live in Louisville, Kentucky. I talked to you, Dan, a few weeks ago. Uh, good to meet you. So, so, so <laughs> we had a good conversation. So I work for strong towns. There's something in the theory of change world uh, called the iceberg theory of change. And I've used this to describe 
strong towns and what we're trying to do to people. And it seems like you guys are, are talking along the same wavelength. So I want to try it out on you and, and kind of get your response. So in this iceberg theory of change, if you think about what's above the waves, they call it events. Uh, but if you kind of adapt that to the, the stuff we're talking about, so think of like bad development. So you see a bad development. You see, you know, the McDonald's that's on a main street or something like that. You think that's really bad. Beneath that, uh, and we all kind of recognize that, beneath that in this uh, theory of change is patterns. So what you recognize is not just this single one-off bad development, that everywhere across the city there's patterns of development, you know, the further you get out, so on and so forth. And not only in our cities, but across the country, there's a pattern of development that we have. Uh, beneath that, and, and those patterns obviously you know, work their way up to the events, beneath that is um, the structures. And this is when you were talking the... Uh, you mentioned structures and zoning and stuff like that. That's what that's what kind of tipped it off for me. So what are the structures that enable those patterns to persist? So maybe it's zoning. Maybe it's the way we finance our places. And and you said this, like working at that level is the solution. That's why I want to kind of throw this at you. Beneath that in this uh, theory of change, the base level is mental models and assumptions. So what are the mental models and assumptions that people make that enable those structures to persist that enable those patterns to persist. And it seems like you guys are talking at the level of mental models and assumptions and structures. Um, so like a mental model and assumption that Strong Towns is trying to change is that all new growth is good growth, that anything we can induce to bring into our community will be good for our community and will lead to good things. You know, we've kind of shown that's not necessarily true, uh, that some of the growth that you can bring in is is financially insolvent. Does that theory of change make sense to you? And kind of what level do you think we should be working at? Well, this is amazing, an amazing philosophy. <laughs> it's like a philosophy, philosophical construct, but if you think about it, it's absolutely correct. Well, what we try to do is basically to listen to people, to find this, uh, the underlying, how did you call it, the, the, the bottom, the value, the, yeah, the, mind, the model. mind model. Yeah. I said it, about, I, I called it values, or, you know, this is yeah, how no. people basically perceive the world and what is good and what is bad for them. As uh, professionals, we, first and foremost, we have to listen. And the, the good news for us retrofitters <laughs> and repairers is that actually the market is shifting. I mean, we listen and we hear the younger generation. They love, you know, walkable places, not necessarily urban, not necessarily just in the downtowns. You know, I mean, I, I have a son who is a millennial. I have colleagues who are millennials. You know, they don't want cars. They don't they want to bike everywhere. They just, you know, they're not interested in the things which the prior generation was interested. So I think that this this uh, kind of bottom and the widest base for your iceberg actually is there. We don't need to create it. We don't need to do anything about it. You know, it's, it's there. You know, and then the next one is the, where we can be helpful with the regulatory mechanisms because we have been doing this for, you know, 30 years and then the layers above. I think the mental models of the younger generations are, are changing in quite profound ways, and we'll, we'll see what that means soon. There's also this issue of people who want to grow their own food. Like they just they want to be closer to the stuff they consume somehow, and, and we'll see how that all plays out. And I not guess. to be only consumers, but just the creators, which right. is, a, which is right. I think it's a huge difference probably from prior generations. Yeah, but there's still this issue. There's a lag in terms of who has the power, or as Dan would say, who's in the room making the, the decisions about how resources are allocated and regulations are, are, are produced. So while I think desires, the kind of shape of desire is profoundly changing, it's hitting up against kind of entrenched class anxieties, people who don't want to 
lose things they've been used to having and will go to great lengths to, to protect that. And just as an aside, some of these really crappy places, the strip malls and the, the trailer parks and other kinds of, of really rundown apartment complexes can be quite profitable to their owners. That's another one of these, these in, impediments. There's, there's money to be made in leaving them in the, the way. It's a lot of money in trailer parks. Yeah. I think the economic conditions for me are really the, the bottom of the iceberg. And you have a generation coming up for whether or not they actually want what their parents had. And I have a lot of friends who do want the suburban lifestyle and everything that comes with it. It's just a matter of financial you know, ability to access those things. You know, what happens? You know, I'm gonna, I, ha- I hate to use the D.C. area market again. Like the housing, housing prices keep getting higher and higher and incomes aren't. So what happens when the demand for these houses just suddenly goes slack because people literally cannot afford to buy these houses. What happens when even wealthy you know, suburban municipalities say, you know what, we, we can't actually afford to maintain all these roads anymore. We're going to have to jack up your property taxes again. We had that conversation in my county a couple of years ago, and the result was term limits. Um, <laughs> uh, so No, you will continue to provide exactly. low-cost services for high-cost stuff. So yeah. I think a lot, of, a lot of these economic conditions that are only going to, I think, compound in the coming years are going to start forcing the question, regardless of what actually people want and what people say they want, it's going to force these questions about how do we build our communities and whether the models we've been working on are sustainable. I want you to give me the vision of what America looks like 20 years from now with a suburban retrofit kind of overlay on it. So the work here is successful. It it gets in places. What what does this look like? And my follow-up question is going to be, what percent of America do you think could actually be suburban retrofit? I mean, where, where, where are we more likely to end up? Because I'm kind of a realist in this you know, whole conversation, and I, I want to make sure we end with that. So tell me what you see happening to the broad swath of this continent, what your optimistic vision is. That's, that's a very, very tough question. You know, we have, I have been in this business for 25 years, and actually change has been very slow. It's not something which, uh, you know, we just draw a little suburban retrofit drawing and it becomes a reality. Here next to me is Randall Emai, who is the architect working on Mashpee Commons, the first greyfield redevelopment in the country. Uh, started in 1986. We were involved in 1988, so it's more than 30 years. And guess what? It's like a, a, a third there. of it, a yep. third of it or whatever there. it's built. However, however, because... Because of the bravery of you know of the uh, of the landowner, the developer, Buff Chase, basically, you know, he stuck with it for 30 years. Finally, the regional uh, planning organization realized that projects like this will be probably not saving the region, but they will be the receiving areas for of many good things happening. Number one, from an environmental point of view, all the sewer and infrastructure focused in one place. Number two. Uh, not polluting the water with the septic tanks of the large houses sprawled around the Cape Cod. About social cohesion, you know, the markets and the, the gathering place of the whole area, it's there. Uh, number three, economic opportunities, you know, retail, mom and pop, uh, small incubating businesses, all of that. So all of a sudden, you know, high density is desired there.
there. You know, transportation congestion, not to even mention that. You know, oh, this will save us because, you know, you'll capture many people there. So actually projects like this give me hope. It's not going to be uh, very fast. I think that the next 20 years, now the first 25 years were slower. I think that there will be acceleration of development and redevelopment because we already have successful examples. What Alan and uh, June are doing, you know, they'll have, they have thousands of examples all around the country. It, when their book comes out, and I'm still what I'm doing now for you, ah. it's actually, <laughs> they, we, will sh we will see that there is already a shift in the thinking, you know, around the country. Percentage-wise, I cannot tell you. That's a kind of, yeah, I mean, I can be throwing numbers around. Are you optimistic, though? I'm very you? optimistic. Okay. I'm very optimistic because I have seen the change in the prior 25 years. Yeah. I want to second that. I'm, I'm highly optimistic as well. It's, it's going to be uneven. It's not going to be the, the same everywhere, but I think there is significant momentum. And I live in Manhattan, and I can say from personal experience, the Manhattan of 2018 is is utterly different from the Manhattan of 1998. The kinds of, of systemic change with the bike lanes, with, with you know, a different kind of landscape of, of crime and fear and risk has, has substantially changed the city on, on a, many fronts. Other things, perhaps less so. I'm thinking, you know, Dan, you're going to be my age in 20 years. It'll, it'll be interesting to see just as you know, the populations change, how that affects the, the built environment in subtle and, and profound ways. I, I think if you'd asked 50 to 60 years from now, yeah. that would be, we could answer more emphatically than, than, sure, than sure. 20. But it's, it's steps along the way. What I think we'll see is a, the acceleration of a kind of redistribution of density. So it isn't always a growth model. I think in some metropolitan areas it is growth, but in other places, the Akrons, I think there's an opportunity to see a kind of redistribution of density that could be quite profound and, and life-affirming for communities that aren't in a growing population condition. Go ahead, I'd like, I'd like your final thoughts. I think I'm a little less optimistic. I think in wealthy suburban places, we're going to see some really fantastic retrofits come. And as, as Galena and uh, June said, I think the pace will grow faster. And I think the Overton window of, you know, what is acceptable change in our communities is going to shift, especially as the populations change. But on the broader scale, I'm not sure. I think the, the voices who continue to oppose change broadly in our nation and also in the local level will only get louder and louder. And I, I do wonder what, what kind of cataclysm is it going to take for, for things to really change. I, I think it is less the carrot of we are going to make nice places and more the stick of we can't afford to do this anymore. The burden's going to fall hardest on those you know, suburban communities that historically have already been disadvantaged. Whether they're going to get the same kind of benefits as the places that are getting spoken retrofits, I'm not sure. I think some will. I think the some that have really good bones will. You know, D.C. is surrounded by old streetcar suburbs that have very low um, incomes and very low investment levels, and maybe one day those will be the spoken retrofits of the future. But beyond that, man, it'll. the only thing I can say is it's going to be a fun ride to watch. Right. June Williamson, Dan Reed, Galina Tachieva, <laughs> thank you for being on the podcast. Can you guys give them a... a some support here. Thank you. When your book comes out, let's talk again, because I would be happy to, uh, to delve into that. And thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care.
Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.